Tactics and Practice Podcast. Dobar dan everyone and welcome to Tactics and Practice Podcast, the audio extension of the Axioma Institute for Contemporary Arts discursive program of the same name, focusing on investigative art, society and new technologies. Back in 2021, for the 10th editions of Tactics and Practice, writer and tech journalist Marta Peirano conceived and led a series of conversations with a range of world-class thinkers entitled Reprogramming Strategies for Self-Renewal. My name is Yanis Fakinyansha, I'm the Artistic Director of Axioma, and I'm ready to share with you the recordings of that event, one episode at a time, once a week. The eight episodes feature Marta in conversation with Kim Sterry Robinson, Benjamin Breton, Holly Jim Buck, Anab Jain, Kate Crawford, Joanna Moll, Astra Taylor and Eyal Baseman. This is episode number three, entitled Energy, Can We Repair the Climate? in which Marta talks with geographer and environmental social scientist Holly Jim Buck. The second part of the recording is spiced up by questions from sustainability transitions researcher Rock Kranz, lawyer Senka Shivkovic verbica journalist Borot Taucher, and the online audience. If you missed the previous episodes, you can easily find them wherever you are listening to this one. So without further ado, Marta Pirano talking to Holly Chimbak. Experts say we will be reaching the two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels as soon as 2050, many of them say even 2030. And this is a problem because we are now reaching to 1.2 degrees above and the last few years have been a real lot. Even before the pandemic, there was the crazy hurricanes in 2017, then the unprecedented heat wave in 2018, and then came the crazy earthquake season in 2019. Then there was the California fires of 2020 where 2 million acres were lost. And after that was the Australia uh, <coughs> crazy wildfires of 2020 were as much as 46 million acres were lost and as much as 3 billion with a capital B animals were killed or lost their habitat. We have run out of ways of declaring that was the worst uh, environmental disaster in modern history. And we have finally noticed that it is getting worse and that is happening much faster. But we were supposed to cut global emissions by 7.6% every year for the next 10 years. And even in two, 2020, even last year, pandemic year, we only managed to cut it by 4 to, uh, 4.2%, which is, you know, definitely not enough. I believe this is the reason why even the radical left is warming up to the idea of climate technologies and one of the many, many good reasons why we have here today Professor Holly Jean Beck. Welcome to you, Holly. Hi, Marta. So glad to be here. Very, very big pleasure to have you. So is this why you wrote after geoengineering, climate tragedy, repair and restoration? Have we finally run out of options or run out of time? No, um, 
I think it's important to say that we're not out of options. It's more clear than ever what we need to do. The, the challenge is that we have to build renewable energy infrastructure at basically unprecedented rates, but it's possible. Um, and so on one hand, we're at this really exciting moment where, you know, the, the tide is turning against fossil fuels. Investors are rejecting them. We've had a lot of statements, even from high-level officials, that, you know, coal coal is done, gas is on its way out even. So we're at this point where the, the mood and the sentiment is changing. I mean, effectively, fossil fuels are discursively canceled. At the same time, we need the material reality to match this changing sentiment. And right now, we still have this production gap. Um, there's a report you can all read called the Production Gap Report. And so it looks at this gap between um, what countries and companies are planning to produce and what's needed to stay with this 1.5 degrees Celsius pathway. And so um, countries would need to decrease fossil fuel production 6% a year over this decade. But they're currently planning to increase production 2% a year. And so there's this divergence that grows. So even though we've kind of had this realization socially and it's rippling out into investment, it still isn't quite there yet. So I don't think it's safe exactly to bet on this renewable future unfolding the way that we want it to. It still might. Um, it's just not a certain thing. The other thing is that we need to rapidly reduce emissions, but we also need to remove carbon from the atmosphere. So why do we need to remove carbon dioxide? Basically, there, there's two main roles for removing carbon from the atmosphere. One is to compensate for some small amount of leftover emissions. So probably we've all heard about these net zero targets. Net zero means some amount of positive emissions that are balanced out by some amount of negative emissions. So the carbon removals generate the negative emissions. And, and this is rightfully a contentious idea. Um, but the fact is that some sectors, we just don't have the technology yet to fully decarbonize them. Another reason why we need carbon removal is to remove the emissions that are already up there from all these decades of emitting. So the Intergovernmental and Panel on Climate Change in 2018 put out this special report on 1.5 degrees. And it says that to maintain 1.5, we would need to remove between 100 billion tons and a trillion tons over this century. So, you know, there's a trillion tons out there creating warming, creating climate chaos. We have the technology to move that carbon from the atmosphere into the geosphere, but it's not going to be easy. It's going to be all hands on deck, as they say, to do that. Indeed. But then again, on the 1.5 degrees plan, there is this technologies uh, involved, even though most people don't even think about it when they think about this, you know, at, until today, super ambitious goals. Um, in any case, your book, After Geoengineering, is a, is a really excellent, oddly entertaining, I must say, <laughs> primer on the geoengineering kind of like state of the art scene, I guess. 
And one of the things that you talk about is, you know, the, the two different schools, let's say, of climate technologies, one of them being one that you don't like a lot. I even read at some point that this was the reason why you actually wrote the book, that you found that the worst case scenarios for for radiation solar management scared you enough to write an entire book on geoengineering. So what are we talking about when we talk about radiation management and why is it so bad? Yeah, so basically there's different ways to change the climate on a planetary scale. One is car removing carbon from the atmosphere called carbon dioxide removal, which I've talked a little bit about and we could talk more about. That's quickly becoming um, a mainstream area of research and, and development. But that takes a while to affect a change in the climate. Um, much more potentially quick acting, but um, risky and unknown, is something called solar radiation management or solar geoengineering or albedo modification. There's a lot of terms. The basic idea is to reflect some small amount of incoming sunlight back into space, which would cool the Earth. And there's a few different techniques for doing this. Um, one is to brighten uh, marine clouds by you know, putting small amounts of um, salt particles, say, <laughs> in to create new clouds that would be bright and reflect incoming sunlight. There's, there's a little bit of discussion and research about that, but I would say the main thing that scientists are talking about and modeling is putting particles into the stratosphere to reflect incoming sunlight. Um, and so the stratosphere is a layer of the upper atmosphere, far above, you know, the air that we breathe. So if you put particles up there, they would circulate around for a year or two, probably, um, and then eventually fall back to Earth. But they would form, you can think of it as kind of a an intentional layer of pollution that's uh, shielding the Earth. So, I mean, there's there's a number of you know, potential negative side effects with this, including ones that we don't know about yet because the research on this has been pretty minimal compared to the amount of knowledge we want to have about it in order to do something like that. It would really be a planetary scale intervention. It is, in, yeah, it is interesting that we cannot simulate the sort of technologies before we try them, no? Or at least not at a scale that would be meaningful. And um, and it's important to talk about it because I have the feeling that when people think about geoengineering, what they mostly think is about solar geoengineering and not the other options that are way more palatable, I guess. I mean, tampering with the climate feels definitely morally and even mythologically or biblically wrong. But But we have actually been geoengineering for more than a century at least and for more nefarious purposes and this is something that we have talked with our previous guests in, in previous conversations and according to David Wallace Wells and his terrifying bestseller The Uninhabitable Earth we've done more damage to the environment since the United Nations established its climate change framework in 1992 that we did in all the millennia that preceded it. So we've been doing it deliberately 
or at least knowingly. And here you make you make the case to do it deliberately, but implementing strategies that 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 feel or might be not so risky or unnatural, like managing farmland or coastal ecosystems differently. There is a whole lot of information about big roots. Maybe you could, you know, illuminate, you know, the path a little bit regarding this different technologies. And before you answer, I want to remind our listeners that you can submit your own questions in the chat that Axioma had opened for this conversation and they will be asked at the end of the talk. Yeah, so, I mean, this is such a mess that the, the state of intervention is, is not, we can't just say, you know, we're stepping back, hands off. We really have to have an intentional approach to remedying um, a lot of the harms. And there's there's a lot of strategies. Some of them overlap with ecological restoration. So this isn't just a, a climate crisis. It's an ecological crisis more broadly. And if we're just focusing on, you know, carbon flows, we'll miss some of the other dimensions of it. Um, a big part of it is revisiting how we grow food. So regenerative agriculture is something that a lot of people are excited about because we've lost so much carbon from our soils over, um, you know, centuries, but especially much more recently uh, from how we cultivate crops. Um, but we know how to farm in ways that can put carbon back into the soil. So there's a lot of programs right now looking at how to compensate farmers for changing their practices in order to do that. Those are things that are fairly well-known and simple. Um, No-till, cover cropping, these sorts of things. But th that will have like a limited scale. It's it's part of the, the puzzle, but it, it's not the silver bullet, right? We also need to, um, you know, plant new forests, conserve our wetlands um, so that more carbon can be stored in wetlands. I mean, there's a whole bunch of ecological techniques that are all really important pieces of this. And a lot of that overlaps with things, um, you know, like having more uh, polycultural diverse crops that can boost agricultural resilience in the face of climate change. It overlaps with having indigenous people steward lands. I mean, there, there's a lot of objectives that can be met, uh, you know, once we stop thinking about just carbon and think about, okay, um, what's fair, what's just for, for really restoring how we work with the earth. I mean, agriculture, but also thinking about, you know, adaptation to climate change at the same time. And there's a ton of organizations working on this. It's pretty exciting right now. Yeah, I, I mean, it could go on and on about that. But the, the thing that's unfortunate is that we've put so much carbon into the atmosphere um, that nature just can't do this work all by itself. The, the scale of the carbon pollution is more than what the biosphere can naturally soak up. So for that reason, I think that, and many people, <laughs> many analysts would say that we also need industrial technologies to remove carbon from the atmosphere as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, for the worst part, like this new technology-based Carbon sinks, they're called, no? That use a variety of 
industrial and chemical processes. I think uh, one of the main ones happens to be in Europe, in Switzerland, and it's it's a very interesting project that is right now losing a lot of money. I'm hoping that this will change after this pandemic experience. And and you think this kind of technology should be implemented very selectively and maybe even temporarily, no? Only with some like hard to decarbonize products, like you know, you mentioned before, we're talking about cement, steel, plastic aviation fuel that have no zero carbon replacements or until they have them or we learn not to need them so much because even in the best possible world like all these different materials will still make up to 20 to 30 percent of emissions is that correct well i think it can really be much less than 20 to 30 percent um and I think people have slowly been changing how they think about this as new technologies become available. So, I mean, the question is, what's really hard to decarbonize? Why can't we go to absolute zero? A lot of organizations are are calling for the true zero or the real zero. And um, so basically, people used to think, I mean... Let's say it this way. It's always going to be a political and an economic question at the same time as it's a technical question about what's really hard to decarbonize. So, um, you know, I think we can get these leftover emissions down below 20 or 30 percent. At least I hope so, because we have laws, for example, in New York State, where I'm speaking to you from, um, our law says that we can only have 15% be left over. We need 80, 85% decarbonization. And then still some people say, well, that's not enough. It should really be lower. So l- let's think for a minute about what's really technically challenging. Um, basically, you can think about four main buckets. One is electricity. So we know how to generate a ton of renewable energy. The, the challenge here is having firm electricity, meaning that when the sun's not shining or when the wind's not blowing, do you have enough storage? So here, the storage part is um, the technically challenging part. But, you know, there's more more ideas about how to do this. Some people are thinking about green hydrogen um, as a way to, to fully decarbonize uh, the electricity sector. On the other hand, some that's still um, some local air pollution from combusting hydrogen. So this is one area that's challenging. Another is industrial emissions. There's just some industrial processes that require high temperature heat. Um, so, but a lot of these can also be, you know, carbon capture and storage has a really important role for decarbonizing the industrial sector. So that. Those, those are difficult, but actually possible to decarbonize all the way, I think. Um, the, the other things, though, are transportation and agriculture. Transportation, of course, we have electric vehicles and a lot of ambitious targets and bans. And I think for cars, it's possible to fully decarbonize, but long-haul aviation and shipping are still technically difficult. And then in terms of agriculture, there's a lot of um, greenhouse gas emissions from fertilizer and, you know, different cultivation processes. So can you get that all the way down to zero? 
Probably not with the things we have on hand right now in the time frame we need, but we can get it pretty close. Um, and so the, the smaller we, we sh shrink those leftover emissions, the less infrastructure we need for these so-called negative emissions. You think it can be done on time, even though we're talking about maybe five to 10 years margin to actually get it working, no? Even from your own numbers, which, which is kind of interesting because, I mean, given the fact that even in 2020, which it is true, there was this crazy fires that I guess, uh, changed a lot of things, but we, we stopped industry even in China for, you know, a couple of months. And yet the cut down on emissions was not, was not that. Impressive, no? Were you surprised about that after writing and researching the book? Well, I would say that, can we do this in five to 10 years? I don't think so. Can we do it by 2050? If we try really hard, would I want to bet, you know, <laughs> would I want to bet anything that we will do it by 2050? Personally, I wouldn't because I don't see the evidence of our social system changing that quickly to date. Now it's possible because social systems are nonlinear. You can have unexpected shifts in how people think and in culture, but, um, but that's, that's why I believe it's really important to research and develop carbon removal technologies because they can give you a little bit of flexibility in this. They give you spatial flexibility, because if it's really hard to decarbonize in one area, then you have another area that can remove emissions. Um, that's really important and from a justice perspective as well. And it also gives you some temporal flexibility too. So now we can remove emissions that were emitted, you know, in the past potentially. Um, which is also a dangerous thing because the risk is that people say, okay, well, we'll just admit now, but we're going to remove it in 2070 or 2080. So you have to be really careful with this temporal flexibility. But I think we need to, to recognize it as a source of flexibility. Um, so that's why I think we should be putting so much more research and development into industrial carbon removal techniques. I also think we should be researching solar geoengineering, although hopefully <laughs> hopefully people won't need to go, go down that road. It is an interesting problem, no? Because it seems to be the fastest and the cheapest of, um, at least in terms of implementation, no? Our first guest was, in fact, Kim Stanley Robinson, whose book you might have read. It made me think a lot of your book, where there is, you know, in the plot, very early in the plot, this is not a spoiler, um, there is um, a massive heat wave that kills 20 million people in one go in India. And then India decides unilaterally to deploy um, solar uh, geoengineering, like, you know, to send a lot of planes uh, to disperse uh, sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere in order to stop a new heat wave in the same region, killing a few more million people. And I never thought about it this way, you know, like how desperate a country can be for that, but how reasonable it sounds when you lose 20 million people in, in the course of a few days, you no? Know? Like to buy that time, even if you don't know 
what's going to happen next. And this is going to have a planetary scale effect. And there is studies that consider that crops would be heavily influenced and that, you know, the, the effects might actually be way more devastating than we imagine, way more devastating than a volcano. But, but it still, it, it, it never, like, it never occurred to me that this was the cheap option, like the option that maybe a not so big country, not so developed country could actually take. Is that realistic thinking or not? I mean, we just don't know, <laughs> you know, very much about it because so far it's been studied in computer model simulations, which are getting better, but still have limitations. And I mean, to research this, there's, you need to understand better how, how clouds behave or what the chemistry in the stratosphere is. There's just so much that scientists haven't studied yet regarding it. So in a way, I don't want to say too much about it just because it's this unknown. But but from my view, we need to know, you know, what effects it would have. Um, and I think it's better to know that sooner rather than be in a situation where what if there is some heat wave and then you have some politicians saying, oh, this is an emergency. Let's do this. They need to be seen that they're acting they need to display this, um, you know, control of the situation, right? So then they reach for this. But if it hasn't been adequately researched and understood, um, then that could be a very bad situation. So that's yeah. part of my case for doing the research. Yeah. That said, people um, worry that, you know, if you do the research, then it makes it more likely that it will happen, that it puts you on this slippery slope. And I, I agree that that's a source of concern. But if you weigh the risks of doing research and the risks of not doing the research, I think it's better to know. Yeah, also once the idea, once the thought is out there, it's like once you have tasted, you cannot untaste it, no? I mean... It is better to research it than to not, even if it's just for, I don't know, letting it go as a concept. But uh, going back to the carbon uh, removal, you dare to talk about the polemic carbon market, uh, which is contingent <laughs> area of, of, of debate. As This is how already now those who maybe profited the most from the damage are buying their way out of the crisis. And they're using offsets to buy net zero status without actually reducing their emissions at all. Or, uh, you know, we're talking about fossil fuel companies who burn fossil fuels for electricity and transportation and heating and industry, but also about agricultural emissions from deforestation, livestock, fertilizers. So how difficult do you think it would be to avoid such exploitation if we start, like, you know, capturing carbon at, at a massive scale? Yeah, I don't think that a carbon market on its own will work for this problem. I think that we need regulation on that has absolute limits on emissions. I also think that we also need to, at the same time as we're thinking about emissions, focus on the production of fossil fuels. So this whole thing about net zero emissions has really distracted from the, the production side of things. Um, 
I do think that we'll need some system for exchanging uh, emissions and removals to have this flexibi flexibility in the system that I talked about, just because this capacity to decarbonize and to remove carbon is unequal. Um, but if this was just a market, if the way these continued emissions were allocated was to the highest bidder, then what happens is that actors who can afford to pay the most will have an advantage. So you can imagine two companies. Imagine that one of them is a really big company and it treats the environment badly and it underpays its workers. So it will be, you know, it can afford more of these pollution permits. And then if you have a small company, which um, pays its workers well, it maybe has less money to afford these emissions, right? So it's just a, a terrible idea for a system to have it be entirely market-based. Um, so on the regulatory side, what do you do? Maybe you have different caps for each sector. Um, you know, there's been a lot of cap and trade systems discussed, and um, this is how a lot of markets work already. I think that so another thing that we need um, in our regulatory approach is something like a carbon take-back requirement, which some um, organizations and academics have been discussing, that if you produce a ton of carbon, you're obligated to remove a ton of carbon. So focusing that more towards the point of production rather the point of the point of combustion. So I think there's a whole policy landscape here to explore and part of it's just going to be keeping the the phase out of fossil fuels as a goal really centered not just thinking about emissions but what's the plan for phasing out coal and oil and then gas um, knowing what facilities to close you know that this is all people have drawn out roadmaps for this, but now we have to go and implement them, which will take a lot of political power. It's not going to be easy, but it seems like the obvious thing we have to do. So what countries do you think are more in the right path to do that? Do you have, can you think of an example of a country that is definitely like, you know, finding, finding the roadmap available in terms of, you know, like public money investment in terms of decarbonation plans and also like decreasing of, of production? I mean, in terms of decreasing production, not yet. I think that, you know, country like a country like Sweden has very ambitious targets and plans and probably has the ingredients in place to carry them out. Um, Finland as well. But one thing that it's, it's important to understand that this decarbonized world, you know, a country like the U.S. or regions like Europe have an advantage, actually, geopolitically in this world. So, I, you know, I think it's important that we acknowledge that when we talk about these types of goals, because these exit strategies are going to be different for each country and they're going to have different costs for each country. There's a lot of countries out there that rely heavily on fossil fuel production for their economy, for their government budgets. Um, and so we need to think about this problem, not just say, okay, New York or California or the U.S., we're not there yet on the U.S. level, but, you know, 
it's not enough to just say, okay, we've done a good job. Everybody needs to do like us. We need to think about the whole planet here and how we can support different regions in this. Also, there is the issue with data, no? Because, I mean, in order to... In order to capture all this CO2 and do it in a reasonable, productive way, you need a lot of data. You need to know, you know, how to manage it and where to store it. And for that, you need like planetary scale data for planetary scale computation, which of course is something we talked a lot about with Benjamin Bratton in the last conversation. And there is this problem that most of the data from, you know, satellites, etc., happens to belong to certain countries and not others, no? Like, you know, the States, I assume China, and definitely Europe, but maybe the rest of the planetary community is not in possession of enough information in order to do these things properly. Yeah, certain countries and also certain companies. <laughs> in some sense, I'm more worried about that because... You know, some of the satellites do have, if they're publicly run, have publicly accessible data sets. Um, I think that transparency is really important here, not just for people to be able to do research, but also for the governance of these things. So, for example, if a company claims that it's sequestering some amount of carbon, you know, there need, there should be a publicly accessible record to be able to prove that. And, and we don't currently have that. And so we had some issues. For example, in the U.S., there's um, a tax credit that companies can get if they put carbon, carbon dioxide underground. And a lot of companies were improperly claiming that tax credit. And it took... Um, one of the members of Congress to order an audit of these records to discover that. But without that, you know, oversight, um, it would be better if this oversight was automatically in the public domain instead of having to, you know, ask companies, please, will you give me this record that you actually did this thing that you said you did and got paid by the public to do. Um, so, I think we could have that. I think it's a better, it's one part of this, you know, creating data as public infrastructure project more broadly. Yeah. Yeah. Also very specific kind of data, because one of the other things that we were discussing with our previous guests was precisely that this movement to take back the data from Facebook or you know, Google or Amazon, et cetera, I mean, it is it is good and all, but definitely not the kind of data that we need for that. No, I guess we're thinking more the kind of data that, that is being collected by the new platforms of precision agriculture, for instance, which is a topic that fascinates me. No, like all these satellites looking at your crop <laughs> and your use of water and all these small farmers and people from, I guess, the small agro uploading their data into their system so so they know exactly who's growing what and what products are being used for it and all that. Like, I guess that kind of data would be useful because agricultural emissions are a big chunk of the problem, aren't they? And the other one that I guess we are more reluctant to let go of. Yeah, I mean, that, that data could be a public good in a lot of ways, but it's also important for the 
the farmers to to re- retain some control over their own data too. So I think think about that and then think about, you know, forest carbon monitoring. Um, all of this, you know, if there's a was a public way of accessing at least some of it, then people would have more trust in these systems because the carbon offset markets to date have been really plagued with, you know, allegations of outright fraud, if, if not uh, just mistakes, right? So right now I think that the the trust people have in these um, offsets and claims is pretty low and addressing the data infrastructure would be one way to remedy that. So top of your head, what companies would you want the data from? Like, you know, if you if you could like, you know, if you hit the Jenny on the lab uh, and you could ask him for the data of like, you know, three or five companies, what, what companies would, would you think would be the most useful data from? Well, I think that, I mean, it depends who you are. <laughs> me, me as a citizen, I don't know, but I, I'd be interested in, in data from oil companies, what they know about, um, you know, they, they have tremendous leakages in their infrastructure. There's a huge amount of emissions that are just from leaky pipelines and so forth. And so if you knew where that was, then you could really put pressure in, in specific places to get that fixed. I think that would be important. And so you have um, NGOs who are actually, you know, launching satellites to monitor this independently, which is a good step. So maybe I've been thinking a lot about fossil fuel companies, so I might start there. Hmm. It's funny because it's the same problem with water, no? Like, you know, we think about, you know, not keeping the taps open and not watering our lawns, but most of the water is lost through leaky pipes, <laughs> leaky pipelines from big infrastructure. So, yeah, I guess sensors in the pipes would definitely be a very, very useful infrastructure. And before I go to my next question, I again want to remind the listeners, the viewers, that you can ask your own questions to Holly and we will read them at the end. But now I want to talk about social justice, not only because the countries and companies who have Wittenly, as we said before, ruined the planet, seem to be the ones in possession of the technologies and the resources and the data to deploy most of the strategies. But also, you uh, point out how most of the research and campaigning and voting for this radical technologies comes from big cities, while most of the implementations and changes will be endured by the rural world. So you propose to resolve this, you know, conundrum to unknot the situation, would you call collaborative geoengineering? I guess not a feudal model of decarbonization, but like more of a global independent, decentralized one, super ambitious. But can you describe like the main lines for that? How would they be? Like what kind of entanglements do you imagine? Yeah, I mean, I'm influenced by my research in the central United States um, in rural areas where I've spoken to a lot of people who just feel left out from this whole vision. They might not understand or believe in the need for it. They might be on board with it, but still feel like their interests and concerns aren't addressed. So 
that's a big challenge because we really need a lot of land for, for renewable energy, for, for wind and solar, as well as transmission lines. Um, and so in the U.S., we've already had over 100 jurisdictions that have passed regulations limiting um, renewable energy. So, I mean, this is a, a disconnect that has very real implications for our ability to get to these decarbonization goals. And um, so, pe so people need a say in, in the plan. They need to be part of the planning process, right? This is um, true across the board, not just in rural areas, also um, in urban ones. So I think that there's two things that we can work on. Um, one, I'll, I'll just put under the general category of platform governance. So now we we have debates about these things on social media platforms and the political economy of them, the advertising-driven model, um, you know, designed to maximize time on site. There's been some research, not always very good research, and I think we need more research on how this all works, but pointing that to the affective polarization that people when spending time will become more polarized in echo chambers. And I'm saying that very generally because I realize that the, the research actually shows that there's a lot of different forms of this. Um, but, but this is a real threat to, to, you know, planetary health, right? If we have media platforms that are making it hard for us to come to some shared consensus about what needs to be done. Um, so I think that, you know, at, at its best, I think that that looks like um, breaking apart these platforms and running them as public infrastructure, which may seem far off, but I think it should be a goal. Um, because right now the, the temptation is to just focus on disinformation, like bad information as a virus, and that you can somehow cure it by just tweaking the algorithms. And I think that that's too limiting for, for the task at hand. The second thing that I think we need is um, dedicated public funding to real world engagement processes around making the plan for decarbonization. So we have, you know, governments will fund test facilities or demonstration plants to say that this technology works, but we also need funding for the social processes for, um, people to come together at different scales and engage and actually be be heard um, and help determine what the plans look like. And I'll just say that there, there's one good study that came out um, recently in Los Angeles. It was about how the city of Los Angeles could get to 100% renewable energy. And it was done with um, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, this uh, publicly funded supercomputer super that ran 100 million simulations. It had an incredible amount of data about demand on the grid and um, where you could actually put rooftop solar and public health impacts and all these different considerations to make the plan. But through the process of doing that study and coming up with the simulations, they had a community advisement group that met several times every few months with local stakeholders to make sure that this plan would be something that was 
interesting and useful for the people in that community. So, I mean, more more projects like that that really are in a dialogue with communities, I think, are going to be really important to seeing the stuff built at the scale that we need. Yeah, one of the things that always strikes me when we're having these conversations is, is this idea that that we do have a lot of good ideas, like, you know, put solar panels in every roof and, you know, in the cities and, and you know, and, and replant trees and all the places where we have uh, garages and things like that. But there's always the hit of, like, it costs a lot of money. I mean, there is the problem of we would require some energy to actually do that, of course, especially the planting of massive amounts of forest. But But when it comes to, like, you know, putting solar panels and windmills and all that. All we need is money. And and one of the things that the pandemic has made me think a lot about is, is you know, at the beginning, how everybody was talking about how the pandemic crisis was very bad, but then the economic crisis that was coming next would be worse because we couldn't stop for a year, whatever we were doing without, you know, the whole world collapsing. And I kept thinking how weird it was because, the virus was something we couldn't control, but the money is just something we agree on. <laughs> it's just a bunch of databases updating at the same time, no? <laughs> updating in unison. So this idea that we can't really, you know, take our most ambitious plans, like putting solar panels in, in the cities, etc., because it's so expensive when we're looking at like a future <laughs> of total devastation in the in the next 50 years i find that completely mind boggling like it's it's you know it's it's something that i can imagine when you're like deep down in the research like you are must be particularly annoying no no, I'm just always shocked by how actually low some of the cost estimates for these things are I mean, the money is really not the the problem. The problem is the social license and the support. The, I mean, the, the cost is, you know, respectable, but totally doable. There's a study in the U.S. Um, that for this net zero America vision done by Princeton. And I think that the, the price tag for the next 10 years to get this started was about two and a half trillion, maybe 2.7. I forget the exact amount, but between, between two and three. And so we had, you know, recently we spent 1.9 trillion on infrastructure um, on top of other coronavirus stimulus payments. We have our Biden administration putting forth a two point something trillion dollar infrastructure plan. So these are figures in line with what we've already spent and what we could spend. I know that the U.S. is in something of a special situation because of the way it's this reserve currency and not every government's in a position to simply print more money. But but still, I, I do think that the costs of this transition are, are bearable. Um, and so really it's just the, the political will that's the obstacle. Or more, at least more bearable than climate change. <laughs> when we think about you know, again, David Wallace Wells' book strikes me as a scenario of such horrifying, you know, possibilities that the idea of not having enough money to fix that when it's only about the parts that are, that are only about money are just, you know, mind, like it's just, you know, 
defies common sense, I would say. But before, before I give you to our viewers and our special guests, I would like to ask you, are you more or less optimistic after this pandemic? Like, you know, I guess in the States, uh, a lot of things have changed, but do you feel that this event, which is a climate event too, has changed our will towards a better arrangement uh, regarding carbon dioxide and energy and carbon production, etc. Do you think we are better than a year ago? No, I don't. I think that, I mean, I appreciate that we're now in a paradigm where we may be willing to do public spending on crises. So, so that's, you know, that's, that's one good thing, but um, I think we're also in a situation where we're going to be more polarized about anything involving individual restrictions. Um, and so that, that could be a shame. <laughs> yeah. It's a complicated question. I don't think we're, we're in a better place uh, after it. I am so sorry to hear that. <laughs> I thought of all people, Americans would be definitely way more optimistic today than a year ago. But I guess on the surface, it seems that a lot is happening. But then on the background, even in Europe, we're also noticing that, that lots of this stimulus packages for like European Green New Deals are going to the same hands that we were talking about before, like, you know, big energy companies, etc. But now I must reluctantly uh, give you away to our special guests in Ljubljana. And, and so there you are. Hello. You mentioned social transformation and that the relationship with Earth has to be transformed. And I personally believe that stopping global heating and 1.5 degree or 2 degrees is doable. But I'm asking myself, is this society can do it? Because, well, this is my core question for last year, looking around the world. And I'm asking myself, is this really the best that humanity can perform? We can hide behind political decisions. This is obstacle, obviously. But humanity as a whole, is this really the best we can do? We seriously lack responsibility and wisdom and respect, which is the key word for living together and living with Earth. And the question for you, because you are environmental sociologist, is how do you see personally what is necessary to overcome this gap between current prevailing state of mind and this ideal human society or state of mind that would be able to do what is necessary, not what is politically agreed, but what is necessary to do it soon. Thank you for that question. Um, I think that one thing that is lacking is a, a shared vision or a shared narrative of what's necessary. I think that this is really getting in our way. And I understand the ways in which it's problematic to say that everybody should have the same, uh, you know, 
storyline, but I think that right now for this particular thing, I think, you know, the the best we have is this shared number of 1.5 and it's really not, it's, it's not enough to reach everybody. Um, and so, you know, I feel a certain amount of despair of how do you get to that shared understanding in such a polarized media ecosystem. Um, I don't know what the way forward is going to be there. Um, but the, the one thing, the one hope I cling to is that social change is, um, it can be quick. <laughs> it, it doesn't take as long time as technological change. And I don't know, we might, we might take away the wrong lessons from this pandemic, at least in the U.S., um, there's been so much despair about the political response, but people are looking at the vaccines that were developed in record time, and there's been some success in deploying those as, you know, so that's become the way out of the pandemic. So the takeaway might be, well, we're socially broken, but at least we can quickly produce this technology. I don't know if that's the lesson we should take away from it, but for better or worse, that might be one of the outcomes. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hello. I would elaborate on the last two questions. Why don't we proclaim climate change as crisis? And then we all know how crises are solved with a large, enormous amounts of money so far. And can we use this momentum of COVID when countries are trying at least to coordinate their actions, trying. But I see a problem in this post-COVID recovery. All countries are saying we have to develop and we have to raise our GDP. How does that align to, uh, I don't know, carbon removal projects that are not really lifting the GDP of countries? Thank you. Thank you. I guess on the first part of that about declaring climate change an emergency, I would actually be very cautious about that, which might be surprising. And actually, this is something I've changed my view on in the wake of COVID because countries and jurisdictions all around the world have used the rhetoric of crisis and emergency to curtail human rights or postpone voting. I mean, this has really been um, a concerning pattern in a lot of places. And so it, it, I think that with climate change, it's a very grave situation, but it's something that's going to be with us for a very long time. So I'm worried about introducing emergency language um, because it, it's something that requires decades-long planning, really a, a dedicated process, not just a single emergency. Um, that said, I think that, you know, I, I do think that nations are focused on, on the economy now, but um, I'm optimistic on the way that the administration in the U.S. at least has approached this, where they're thinking about stimulus through green infrastructure, some some infrastructure not so green, but really a lot of funding and thinking about this as a new industry, um, both, both on the renewable side, but also industrial decarbonization and green hydrogen and some of these other pieces of it. So 
<laughs> I mean, we, we have the choice there to to think of it that way and think about job creation and green jobs. Um, and I think that the peop- the the countries that are really successful in this century will take that that up, that challenge, and that invitation. Thank you. That is that is such a smart thing to say. Yeah, we don't want to be in a state of emergency too long. No, <laughs> we, we all know what that means. It's so true. Hi, both. I'm happy to be here. Uh, my name is Rook. Uh, hi, everyone who's watching. Um, so uh, I read your book, Holly, uh, just recently in preparation and uh, for this uh, listening in here. Uh, I just wanted to briefly mention um, what really inspired me about the book. And one thing is that essentially uh, what I think you're doing is juxtaposing different discourses and imaginaries around the, the specific topic of engineering and also exposing some of the false binaries that, that might might appear there. Um, and that's very close to my heart uh, as well. Um, just to give a little plug into some uh, local activities here in Slovenia. I'm part of a small collective, a translation collective, um, and we've been translating some seminal works in political ecology, um, and especially discourse theory, so around environmental discourses. Um, so, yeah, for Slovenian listeners, uh, be sure to check out uh, those translations. Uh, it's of um, uh, Politics of Environmental Discourse, uh, Politics of the Earth, uh, The Green State. Uh, these are some of the uh, books that we've translated. Um, and the other part that really fascinated me was, uh, well, your use of fiction and also making a case for for fiction and, uh, you know, speculations and uh uh, bringing that into the experiential realm. Um, and I think also what was implied there that uh, uh, this kind of, uh, you know, approach of transition co-design. So, like, how can we have these uh, participatory futures engagements? How can we uh, create uh, different processes that involve the public um, in a certain kind of, yeah, we can say anticipatory democracy uh, type of model? Um, and I was just wondering um, to tickle kind of your your imagination, if you will, um, like how far do you think we can uh, take these kind of uh, participatory futures uh, processes uh, in terms of them generating the political will and political power necessary? Um, and also, I might add that uh, I think your kind of, you know, reflections on the discourses is something that should really be embedded within these kind of explorations of futures so that people are able to reflect on the discourses present, the used futures or default futures, if you will, and, and to really imagine uh, different ones uh, place-based, but also at a global scale. Uh, so just some thoughts on, on that. Thank you so much for those comments. Um, so how, how far can we take the participatory imagining of, of futures. I think that um, to me, it seems like the, the only way forward. And I'm often asking myself when I read these roadmaps for, for net zero or projections of the scale of infrastructure and activity required, um, if, if these are compatible with democracy actually, in, in places where people 
might not want these infrastructures or don't share the vision or see the need. Um, and that's something that really concerns me. <laughs> right, right now, we've had, you know, a lot of events in the U.S. that really question uh, the, about the future of democracy here. I, I mean, and in other places in, in the world, too, I guess. So to me, the participatory imaginings are the the only way I can see forward for, for democracy. But then it's always the question of who's responsible for convening such things or dedicated the, the time and the attention in this, you know, attention economy, in this situation where many of us don't have time to think about these futuristic things because we're parenting during a pandemic or we're working in our jobs that are very demanding. Um, so <laughs> am I hopeful about it? I, I have to be hopeful about it. How far can we take it? I don't know, but I know that we've really only scratched the surface of it. And if we can solve it with regards to climate change, it'll be the same technology, same social technology, same processes um, for solving these other challenges that we have. So it's not applicable just to climate change. It's kind of uh, figure it out in this domain and apply it to um, economic and racial justice or the, the other really pressing things that we have to, to navigate through this century. Thanks so much. I'm, quite, I'm very glad he mentioned this. And while we wait for Neja to introduce the, uh, the audience questions, I was wondering, you know, as I was reading the book, because you, you have chosen this uh, choose your own adventure kind of uh, style, which I thought it was a bold and amazingly engaging manner, <laughs> I guess, of, of writing about a topic that, that is in general, quite quite rough to digest. And I was wondering, have you ever thought or have you been offered to even make a video game with this? Because, you know, there's been a number of video games, for instance, in the field of disinformation. There was this Cambridge video game called Bad News, where you play a tycoon for a disinformation agency like the IRA or something like that. And, and you learn <laughs> to disinform. And I have used it often as a workshop tool for people to learn to recognize disinformation when it comes to them. And so I thought the second time around about your book and the possibility of turning that in, into a video game, I think it would be terrifying but also engaging and definitely very informative, no? Like a civilization-style uh, video game. Have you thought? Have you got offers? Is Epic looking at us right now? <laughs> no, not yet, but I think that would be great. You know, when I lived in Los Angeles, I used to occasionally talk to screenwriters who had some geoengineering plot in mind, but usually... Sometimes it was a very typical sort of plot. So I think something more interactive and exploratory would be really warranted for this topic. Yeah. Hi, Necha. How are you doing tonight? Hi, Marta. I'm doing great. How are you two doing? I'm good. I'm glad to see you. Yeah, glad to see you too. Thank you both for this interesting and important discussion. 
And as always, thanks to our online audience posing so many questions in the chat. We have selected three questions today. The first one coming from a person with a very relevant username, NetZero, and they ask, developing new technologies for carbon removal could imply the continued production of it. In this light, could CDR be seen as a way out for polluters? Definitely. Yeah, I think that's the, the clear danger and probably the default path unless environmentalists and other people engage with the future of this technology. If it's just capitalism as usual, developing it without strong policy action and a different kind of social imagination, then I think it becomes, I mean, it becomes this discursive way out for a couple of years until people realize that it's not really being built at the scale required. And then it just kind of fades away and we're in a deep climate crisis. So, I mean, then the question becomes, what do we need to do to keep it from becoming that? I think that we need to talk about phase out and to talk about policy designs for carbon removal, like this carbon take back requirement that would keep it from becoming that. Thank you. Our second question comes from Laura or Laura. They ask, what is the cost of developing new CDR or SRM technologies going to be? And more importantly, who is going to bear it? Yeah, I think that, I mean, so the cost of developing them will be primarily the public sector and early stage investors and philanthropists, but the cost of actually deploying and using these technologies will be far vaster. And it's really a policy design question. So for example, removing carbon directly from the atmosphere with demonstration scale direct air capture plants might cost around $600 per ton of carbon, which clearly isn't uh, sustainable, but analysts are looking for that price to come down with economies of scale, with learning by doing and maturation of the technology. And so some people are looking more at this 100 to 200 dollars per ton of carbon range, hopefully near that low end. Um, and once you have that, that's roughly in line with a lot of the carbon prices now. I know that the EU's price on carbon is at a record high right now, I guess some, something around 45 euros per ton. So other other jurisdictions have, have higher prices. So that, then the question is, you know, okay, who's paying for that? What's the design of those markets? I mean, if it's a cap and trade system, then, you know, permissions are allocated to, um, could be allocated, it could be done by the market. So, the, I mean, there's a lot of discussion right now. This is what kind of the world is trying to figure out what, what that design looks, for, looks like. Um, and in terms of making sure that, that people don't pay the cost of it, that's that's a complex question and is going to require um, intervention in terms of making sure that electricity and fuel prices aren't raised by these carbon take back requirements. So it's it's more than we can get into now, but I think if the 
there's public pressure and public engagement, we can make these look more favorable for everyday people. Well, for our third and last question, Zoe asks, how does carbon removal via solar geoengineering compare with removal of carbon from techniques such as forests or land use change and forestry? If we started tomorrow, how many tons of carbon would go by 2050? Okay, so yeah. So one thing that we should make really clear is that solar geoengineering and carbon removal are two different approaches that work in really different ways. Um, so for, for carbon removal, if we started planting forests, how much we would remove by 2050 um, really depends on the area of land that would be planted. And so at a very optimistic scale, imagining, um, you know, that every land not in use for agriculture could be forested or something like that, you can see, you can find reports with different calculations that would be, um, you know, maybe around 2 billion tons a year, every year up to 2050, something like that. But with this uh, forestry approach, after, after a while, those forests will be holding all of the carbon that they can carry. And, and then the work is to just keep that carbon there by not cutting down the forest again or preventing wildfires. Um, so in more technical terms, those carbon sinks will plateau in what they can store over time. Um, so solar geoengineering is a, a totally different thing. Uh, and, and as for its effects, I think that we don't really know enough right now to predict what would happen. Probably we would need a couple of decades of research before that could be responsibly used. Great. Well, um, this, is, this is all the questions from my side today. I want to thank you both again and um, have a great evening. Thank you, Nancia. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Holly, for being here with us today. And very especially, thank you for that book. It has been, you know, almost life-changing for me because I had a very, I think like most of the people in the audience, I had a very specific idea of what geoengineering was and could be. And I think you definitely made me change my perspective quite a big deal. And uh, I want to maybe keep this one thing that you said a few minutes ago as a, as a closing argument for this debate which is that what we need is a shared vision, a shared narrative of what is necessary. This is something that we seem to have a lot of trouble with that doesn't, that should not cost a lot of money, but definitely there are technologies on the way right now. And I do agree with you that we should chop them up and make them public. <laughs> so thank you again for your, for your amazing expertise and your generosity and your time and i'm so looking forward to read your next book thank you so much marta and everybody who asked questions it's been a pleasure thanks so much for listening everyone also from my side 
Next week, we'll be back with Marta Perano and designer, artist, and filmmaker Anab Jai, co-founder and director of Superflux, a speculative design studio based in London. And with our special guests, of course. Reprogramming is a podcast series produced by yours truly, Yanis Vakinyansha and Marcelo Kretic for the Axioma Institute for Contemporary Arts discursive program, Tactics and Practice. All episodes were edited and mixed by Gasper Torkar, who is also the author of the amazing original sound and music. The whole thing was coordinated by Sonia Gardina and realized in the framework of Con's platform for contemporary investigative art. For more information on the context, participants and partners involved, see the link in the description. You are for the more welcome to visit axioma.org where you'll find a wealth of free content, including the book version of the reprogramming talks. And if you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon or by making a donation, but no pressure, of course. That's all for this episode. Greetings from Ljubljana and Nasvidenje.